welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 2nd through Tuesday, May 7th, feature Riccardo Muti and the orchestra joined by mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato. The program includes Georges Bizet's Roma, The Death of Cleopatra by Hector Berlioz, and Autorino Respighi's The Pines of Rome. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Berlioz Death of Cleopatra, a work lasting about 21 minutes. In September 1827, an English troupe of actors brought Shakespeare's Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet to the Odeon Theatre in Paris. Although the plays were given in English and most audience members were forced to rely on the actor's body language and the synopsis they had hastily read at home in order to get through the evening, the event was a sensation. In the words of Alexander Dumas, Shakespeare's works had the freshness of Adam's first sight of Eden. Hector Berlioz also was in the audience both nights, and he was struck as if by a bolt of lightning in a virgin forest, as he later put it. He also fell madly, in the quite literal sense of the word, in love with Harriet Smithson, the tall, stunningly beautiful 27-year-old actress who played both Ophelia and Juliet. Love and literature got terribly confused in Berlioz's mind that week, but despite the fact that he would later marry Harriet, it was Shakespeare who had the more lasting effect on him. That same year, Berlioz entered the Prix de Rome for the first time. This prestigious competition had been established in 1803, it was discontinued only in 1968, by the Académie des Beaux-Arts to honor the most promising young composers, and the winner was given the opportunity to work for two years at the Académie de France based in the Villa Medici in Rome. Each year, all the contestants were assigned the same text to set to music, the subject was usually drawn from mythology or classical antiquity, and most years, including those long after Berlioz's time, the judges favored commonplace talent over originality. Both Debussy and Ravel applied repeatedly. Ravel, who entered five times, never did win. Berlioz's 1927 effort, The Death of Orpheus, was dismissed by the judges as unplayable, although the composer managed to lead an orchestra through it the following year without serious difficulty. Berlioz was determined to try again, and Hermini, his 1928 entry, was awarded second place, which virtually assured that he would win the prize the following year. But the death of Cleopatra, his third attempt, was apparently too bold, dramatic, and unconventional for the Prix de Rome, and no prize was given in 1829. Berlioz did win, finally, in 1830 with the death of Sardanapalus, a work he never valued highly, but one, apparently, that the judges could stomach. Only a fragment of the work survives. The Death of Cleopatra was the first music Berlioz wrote that reflects the spell Shakespeare had cast over him. The text itself was not by Shakespeare, but by a hack, P.A. Villard, who had written the text for the Prix de Rome's Herminie the preceding year, whose wooden verses presumably were designed to inspire similarly faceless, tradition-bound music. But Berlioz had begun to read his Shakespeare, and he was determined to express dramatic truth in music as Shakespeare had in words. 
The year before he began Cleopatra, he referred to Goethe and Shakespeare as the mute confidants of my life. In July 1829, when he sat down to compose music for Villar's text, it was surely Shakespeare's Cleopatra he had in mind. The death of Cleopatra is a triumph of imagination over feeble and constraining poetry. Berlioz begins with unsettled music for orchestra. It must have sounded particularly nonsensical played on the piano for the competition that leads to a series of alternating recitatives and arias for Cleopatra. The overall design is fluid and unconventional, and at the heart of the scene just before the final aria, Berlioz places a meditation, neither recitative nor aria, that is one of the most extraordinary achievements. Headed by a quotation from Shakespeare's Juliet, How If I Am Laid Into the Tomb, printed in the score in English, it is a cry from the heart with the vocal line soaring and plummeting over an oddly syncopated pulsing accompaniment. The final impassioned aria begins conventionally enough, but disintegrates as Cleopatra herself falls apart. The final pages in which the queen dies are unlike any other music composed at the time. Berlioz finished the score less than two years after Beethoven's death. No wonder the Prederome judges did not know what to make of Berlioz's entry, which, before listening to it, they had expected to honor with the prize. The performance cannot have helped because the singer, scheduled to appear, was summoned at the last minute to a rehearsal of William Tell and sent her neophyte sister instead. As Jacques Barzon suggests, without proper rehearsal, she freshly murdered Cleopatra. The day after the competition, the empty-handed Berlioz ran into Adrien Boisdieu, one of the judges and the composer of the opera Dame Blanche. We wanted to give you the prize, he explained, thinking you would be a better boy than last year. I don't say your work isn't good, but how can I pass judgment on what I do not understand? I couldn't help saying to my colleagues yesterday that with your way of writing, you must despise us from the bottom of your heart. Well, that much at least he understood. Cherubini, who had voted for Berlioz, warned the composer that if he kept it up, the public will not like it and the music sellers will not buy. Berlioz asked only, if we're supposed to write music for pastry cooks and dressmakers, why do they give us a text involving the passions of the Queen of Egypt and her solemn meditations upon death? A postscript about Berlioz and Shakespeare, the composer continued to read and reread Shakespeare in the last years of his life. He quoted from Hamlet so often that one of his friends urged him to give a reading to their circle. The reading took nearly five hours. Berlioz refused to cut a word of Shakespeare's text. When he realized that night how many of his friends and acquaintances knew Hamlet only by name and reputation, he was dumbfounded. Not to know Hamlet at the age of 45 or 50 is like having lived all one's years in a coal mine. Program notes by Philip Husher on The Death of Cleopatra by Hector Berlioz. And now on to The Pines of Rome by Ottorino Respighi, the performance time around 26 minutes. Ottorino Respighi came to this country for the first time in December 1925. 
He was already well-known among music lovers for Fountains of Rome, a brilliant tone poem composed in 1916, three years after he settled in Rome. His Fountains of Rome has been played by practically every orchestra in the United States and Europe, the New York Times said before he arrived, a remarkable feat for a piece of music not yet 10 years old. Respighi and his wife, Elsa, a soprano, began their American sojourn in New York City, where he played his new piano concerto, the concerto in the Mixolydian mode, under the baton of Wilhelm Engelberg. After New York, Respighi traveled to Chicago to appear with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which had already welcomed a number of composers as guest conductors, including Antonin Dvorak and Richard Strauss. Like Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev, who had also visited the orchestra, Respighi was a first-rate pianist. It was in the triple-threat role of composer-conductor-pianist that he appeared in January 1926 to play his new concerto and to lead the symphonic poem The Pines of Rome, a sequel of sorts to Fountains of Rome. Although he was born in Bologna and studied in St. Petersburg with Rimsky-Korsakov and in Berlin with Max Bruch, it was Rome that became Respighi's most successful musical subject. Respighi spent the rest of his life in Rome, and he taught at the St. Cecilia Academy for many years. His longest absences were his two North American tours, both of which brought him to Chicago. Respighi had caused a stir in New York when he spoke bluntly with a Musical America reporter. Atonality? Thank heaven that's done for. The future course of music? Who can say? I believe that every composer should first of all be individual. Respighi went on to clarify that for him, dissonance like polytonality had its place as a means to expression it has important uses. For many in the Chicago audience who had already heard some of Schoenberg's thorniest music, including the U.S. premiere of his Five Pieces for Orchestra in 1913, Respighi's works came as a welcome sign of modernism in moderation. As the Chicago Post critic wrote, he has mixed intimately with the advanced thinking of our day, and the resources of the modern orchestra are at his fingertips, but he has kept his head. No pioneering excursions into the trackless wilderness for him. The Italian blood runs too strongly in his veins with the instinctive feeling for melody and the clarity of thought. Respighi's U.S. tour was a triumph. In Chicago, audiences embraced his appearance. The powerful, classic cut of his profile was, as one critic noted, familiar to most Americans only from statues of long-departed Roman nobles. His stage presence, there radiates from him a quality of straightforwardness, a vigor of mind, and honesty of purpose that makes him what the Italians call simpatico. His considerable pianistic skills, his intoxicating music, and his ability to coax powerful performances from the orchestra. Back in Europe, at the end of 1926, he told a Berlin reporter he found U.S. orchestras unbelievably excellent. I often noticed while conducting in America that when I struck a particularly difficult passage, the men plunged into it with an almost fanatic zeal, as though to show me that they were equal to any demand made upon their virtuosity. 
Seven days before Respighi made his Chicago debut in 1926, Pines of Rome had received its American premiere in a spectacular performance in Carnegie Hall under Arturo Toscanini. The composer's wife, Elsa, always remembered the delirious applause that greeted the work. The effect of the symphonic poem with its technicolor orchestration, lush pictorial effects, and clever novelties was overwhelming. The daring of Respighi's language is largely lost on audiences today. Some of the most radical sound effects, such as the phonograph recording of a nightingale song in the Pines of Rome, which were once hotly debated, can seem passé a century later. The imagination of his orchestral writing, rivaled only by Ravel among early 20th century composers, he had studied with Rimsky-Korsakov, the master of orchestration after all, is easily overlooked in the electronic age. His brilliant color palette and the powerful sweep of his writing long ago became the lingua franca of film scores. Even though Respighi's work is no longer in fashion as concert music, he is still the style of choice for epic adventure movies. John Williams, arguably today's most celebrated film composer, claims Respighi as one of his primary inspirations. Respighi's most widely performed works exemplify a lavish musical style that today's culture ordinarily condescends to, but his biggest hits, and they were genuine popular successes, the best sellers of their time, are enduring landmarks, classics of their kind. The composer himself conducted Pines of Rome in Philadelphia, Washington, Cleveland and Baltimore before coming to Chicago and then in Cincinnati on his way home to Rome. Pines of Rome quickly became his signature piece and that rarest of works, a sequel that outdoes the original in brilliance and popularity. Unlike Ravel, who was embarrassed by the hit status of his bolero, Ravel quite enjoyed the success of his most famous creation. He even named his country villa The Pines. And the composer's own guide to the score follows. The Pines of the Villa Borghese. Children are at play in the pine groves at Villa Borghese. They dance around in circles. They play at soldiers marching and fighting. They are wrought up by their own cries like swallows at evening. They rush about. Suddenly, the scene changes. Pines near a catacomb. We see the shades of pine trees fringing the entrance to a catacomb. From the depth rises the sound of mournful psalms floating through the air like a solemn hymn and gradually and mysteriously dispersing. The Pines of the Ianiculum. A shudder runs through the air. The pine trees of the Ianiculum stand distinctly outlined in the clear light of a full moon. A nightingale sings. And the final, Pines of the Appian Way, misty dawn on the Appian Way, solitary pine trees guarding the magic landscape, the muffled, ceaseless rhythm of unending footsteps. The poet has a fantastic vision of bygone glories, trumpet sound, and in the brilliance of the newly risen sun, a consular army bursts forth toward the sacred way, mounting in triumph to the capital. Words by Autorino Respighi and program notes by Philip Pusher on the Pines of Rome by Autorino Respighi. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. <laughs>